the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by my colleagues. Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington Universities, and... Dalibor Rohaj, also with the American Enterprise Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to the European peace that have arisen along a line that stretches from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and why those matter to the United States. Our guest today, uh, whom we've been uh, panting to have on ever since we started the podcast, um, is retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. Uh, his uh, final job at the conclusion of a long and distinguished career in the U.S. Army was as commander of U.S. Army Europe. And nobody knows um, Eastern European uh, security and military affairs, or at least no American, knows these subjects better than Ben does. We're very pleased to have him on. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks and welcome. Uh, ben, I'm going to use the moderator's prerogative, but just ask a very open-ended question because... Um, uh, fortuitously enough, uh, our podcast is on a day uh, where the Ukrainian army seems to be enjoying huge success, really on several fronts. This is kind of a moment uh, long hoped for, long forecast, uh, and appears to finally have arrived. But as always, and, and especially, um, the battlefield is opaque. Uh, and probably as opaque today as it's ever been since the start of the war. So if you could just give us your sense of uh, what this moment uh, is and what it means, uh, that'd be a great place to start. Great. Well, thank you guys for the, the privilege um, to speak with you. Uh, of course, you know, we say that uh, reports are never as good or as bad um, as they sound. And uh, there's an awful lot of good news here over the last few days, but uh, Ukrainian general staff um, has done a masterful job of protecting information, um, what we call OPSEC, operational security. We, we know more about what the Russians are doing than, than the Ukrainians. And, and of course, this is, uh, while it's frustrating for uh, those of us who are trying to watch and figure out what's happening, um, it has... Um, protected them and enabled them to get things in place and to keep the Russians guessing about what was actually going to happen. Uh, I think we'll know more in a, in a few more days, but it certainly seems like there is success from Kharkiv all the way down to Kherson. Um, it almost feels like the attack towards Kherson may have been by design um, a feint. I mean, obviously you want to have success there, but there was so much talk in the weeks leading up to this that there was this big counteroffensive that was coming to Harrison. And uh, the Russians, we now know, moved, shifted forces down towards Harrison. And I think they may have created um, uh, opportunity for the general staff. So two, two more points I'd make on this and then I'll, I'll stop. First, the work they have been doing for the last few weeks of setting conditions, of destroying and degrading Russian logistics, uh, knocking out dozens of command posts, 
uh, creating confusion in the Russian rear area, all the way back to uh, Crimea and even perhaps up in Belgorod. Uh, the increase in partisan and special forces attacks in occupied areas. I mean, this has really made it very difficult for the Russians to analyze and coordinate what, what's going on. Uh, at the same time, and this is the second point, the other part of their setting the conditions is their own force, getting things ready and to conceal it. I mean, that's really difficult when you're talking about moving thousands of people around hundreds and hundreds of vehicles um, to marshal all of this so that you're ready for an offensive operation, the fuel, the ammunition, the medical, all the stuff. And to keep it uh, relatively well concealed, I, I have to say I'm, I'm very impressed. I, I entirely uh, agree with that analysis. Just add one or two things. First of all, my initial thought was, too, that uh, Herson was uh, um, a, 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 at least a demonstration or a limited operation, but it's had increasing success over the last 48 hours or so. Uh, so, which would really be uh, a pretty amazing revelation of Ukrainian overall military strength. You have to ask, can they, these break-ins, uh, you know, uh, from the drive from Kharkiv is already at 50 plus kilometers or something like that. Pretty narrow penetration, but, um, you know, so we'll take some reinforcement to, to hold, I would think. But if they can also, you know, sort of keep pressing in a way that, uh, you know, makes it very difficult for the Russians to <laughs> reverse transfer forces from the south to the east, that would just that would be beyond anything that I imagined the Ukrainians were, were capable of. Not, not in a, uh, you know, not in a structural way, but in just the overall strength of, of their military at the moment. Well, think about the distances involved from, um, from Kharkiv all the way down to Kherson. Yeah. I mean, this, this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers. Right. So it's a huge distance. And when you, let, let, there's so many estimations out there of how many troops the Russians actually have. Right. Let's say there's 200,000 Russian troops. Obviously, that's not 200,000 infantry. That's, you know, that includes tens of thousands who are in the rear area driving trucks, on artillery, all the other stuff. So now you think, okay, let's say there's 100,000. They're actual, you know, in a bunker, in a trench, in a tank to fight. 100,000 spread across that distance is is really really thin and yeah. so um and, and we can assume that the russians made best use of available terrain and all that which they haven't but let's assume that it still uh offers lots of potential for ukraine to achieve mm. breakthrough at certain points and what really matters is not the the width of the penetration in the beginning yeah. but can they follow through where they've had success i mean this is the Acme of uh, maneuver warfare when they're able to yeah. get get into the rear, and um, because of the psychological effect of when when you've got the uh, enemy behind you, I mean, not a happy day. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, you've got, un, in many cases, undisciplined, untrained troops yeah. that don't want to be there to begin with. Um, good opportunity to surrender or drop your rifle and start getting out of there. And, and so that's why after the potential is there, I don't, I don't want to get too excited yeah. yet, but the potential is for you have the breakthrough and then you have what's called exploitation. And um, I would imagine that the general staff has thought through the possibilities and they will likely reinforce where they have great success. Um, the, the fact that the Russian Air Force is, is not in the fight. I mean, this, this is being key also, that they are, they, they are reluctant to do anything other than launch missiles from Russian airspace or from the, over Belarus um, is going to make this more likely that Ukrainians can continue to move as well. So then um, what are the risks as we're looking into the weeks ahead that the Russians can pull? We sort of mm, learned the hard way through this war from the beginning in February until now that we did not, um, that our rationality does not overlap with their rationality when it comes to decisions. It, but on the other hand, because of this blackout and because of, concealing information on both sides, we are in the dark when it comes to what else they can bring to the table. We know it's not much in terms of quality, but we don't know exactly what is there, what they still can do in terms of quantity and how irrational some of the decisions might be. So as we're looking into what we are seeing in the last few days has already a psychological effect if we're looking at the military bloggers and how they're all the russians freaking out um what how do you assess the risks coming from russia as a response to this ukrainian counter offensive in the short term in the next few weeks well um there's i guess there's three or four things that could happen at, at at different levels, of course. Um, unlike in 1943 and 44, uh, there's not, there are not a hundred Siberian divisions on the other side of the Urals that are going to come join the fight. I mean, there, there is nobody else. Um, I don't, I don't think that um, there is a large force uh, with all the good kit lurking somewhere waiting to come in and surprise us. I, I really do think that the Russians that their logistical system is exhausted, um, that they are, I mean, when they're talking about, you know, buying artillery ammunition from North Korea and, and uh, they're doing everything they can to get new troops and this famous uh, third army or third corps that was created um, is already being committed to the fight with almost no training. I mean, that's a sign of the desperation. The fact that the Black Sea fleet is hiding behind Crimea, terrified, of a Ukrainian Navy of Ukraine, and they don't even have a Navy. I mean, this tells, tells me something also. Now, um, that doesn't mean that there won't be, um, that they might unleash a lot of, uh, of, of their remaining cruise missiles. They, if, if they can find large uh, groupings of Ukrainian forces that they might do something like that. Um, more likely is that they may, uh, yeah, I, you know what, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking through what are their, their options. Now, what I do hear from people who are anxious about this, of course, is that, well, what if they use a, a tactical, tactical nuclear weapon? Yeah. 
Okay. Um, of course, that's a possibility. Uh, and they've got thousands of weapons and um, the, the Kremlin is not concerned about how many people might die, including of their own. Uh, but I, I think it is so unlikely that they would do this because I believe that um, it would not really give them a battlefield advantage, something that they could exploit. Um, it would, it perhaps would stop, would change the tempo. I mean, Ukraine, Ukrainians would have to regroup depending on where it was employed. But the real problem for the Russians is that I believe it would be impossible for the United States not to get directly involved if Ukraine or if Russia were to employ even a small tactical nuclear weapon somewhere inside Ukraine. Uh, and our response would not necessarily, in fact, probably would not be a nuclear response, but they could not do nothing because the North Koreans are watching, the Iranians are watching, the Chinese are watching. And if they see that the United States would not respond to use of a nuclear weapon, I think that's a problem. Now, this is what the F-35 was designed for. Um, three or four days, continuous operations, the Black Sea Fleet completely destroyed. Uh, half of the remaining Ukrainian forces, land forces destroyed. And, and so at, at actually quite low risk to our pilots who would be doing this uh, sort of operation um, all inside Ukraine. You know, we're not talking about hitting a target inside Russia, although that probably would be on the list of options if we're talking about Russia using a nuclear weapon even just inside Ukraine. Now, look, this is just my own speculation, trying to think through that that possibility. Um, and this is why I think it's so unlikely. And, and also, finally, while President Putin is evil, I don't think he's crazy, and I don't think he's suicidal. And I also don't think that the 60 or 70 oligarchs that keep him in power are willing to let him just drive them off the cliff uh, with something like, you know, what, what that would mean for what's left of Russia. So this is why I think that's an unlikely response. If I, if I, if I may, I would like to um, offer uh, one prediction uh, which pertains to the sort of military situation on the ground with the, with the caveat um, that I'm, you know, a complete amateur of, 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 of these questions. And then- <laughs> None of us I'll really ask, know what we're talking about. So what then I'll ask a question that, that tries to maybe broaden the horizon a little bit uh, and include some of these um, these political considerations that I think should like, inform our thinking about what might happen in the in the in the coming months. So, so the prediction, uh, I mean, it's sort of based on you know like a, 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 sort of my sensation that you can sort of d d disprove, namely that, that that the Ukrainians are fighting uh, in a in a sort of more sophisticated way than the Russians in the sense that they are not focused on sort of you know, retaking territory and, and making sort of specific territorial gains, but they are rather very patiently chipping away at the Russian capabilities, degrading, you know, the command posts, uh, stockpiles of weapons, supply lines, logistics, and they can, you know, go on chipping away at the Russian capabilities for weeks and weeks and months. And, 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 and then I, my sort of mental model of what might happen if this continues is that the Russian defeat will come you know, like bankruptcy, slowly and then all at once. Uh, and the question that is sort of related to that is, 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 you know, like how much time 
politically speaking, Ukrainians have to do that. Europe is headed for a you know, really bad winter, <laughs> politics-wise. Already have you know protests over energy prices, you know, resurgence of 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 populism. We don't really know whether that sort of Western unity that that helps sustain uh, Ukrainian defenses through military aid and through you know the sort of squeeze of sanctions on on Russia can can be can be sustained indefinitely. So 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 there seems to be a sort of tension, at least to my mind, between like what what sort of works. Uh, in terms of military tactics on the ground and, 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 and the sort of overarching sort of political imperative, which is to really, you know, hit the Russians and, 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 and bring this to a sort of victorious end as, as quickly as possible. So, so how do you see these, these two sort of considerations, uh, you know, interacting in, in, in the weeks and months ahead? If I could, if I could just put you up, uh, John. Uh, put my finger on the scale a little bit. I mean, is it tenable? Isn't this, you know, again, even if it continues for another week or so or something like that, really taking all the oxygen out of the idea that Ukraine can't win and that Russia's weight will will tip the scales inevitably. I mean, I just, that was, you know... I think for reasonable people disproven, but I think for the unreasonable remnant who are attached to the idea of inevitable Russian victory, I think maintaining that at this point is, is very hard. And and the Ukrainians aren't they buying themselves, uh, a, you know, a winter's worth of uh, resolve uh, in Western Europe? So uh, good questions. Um, First of all, uh, not only is Russian victory not inevitable, I would say that Russian defeat is inevitable, that Ukraine is absolutely going to win. Um, it, how fast? And, and when I say win, I'm talking about they get it all back, including every ounce, every inch of, uh, of Crimea, Donbass, all of it. That all comes back. Um, that's, that's going to be the uh, military outcome of this, whether that happens in the next few months or my assessment at the latest by the end of next year, but I think it's going to happen sooner than that. Um, and then, of course, how how Kiev defines victory, how the rest of us define victory will include something about uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian ability to continue to defend itself, uh, inflicting so much pain on Russia that they won't threaten other neighbors for a very long time to come. And these kind of these kind of matters as well. But to the specific question, uh, you're exactly right, uh, Giselle. That um, people who are still and there are people who are invested yeah. in you know uh, Russia eventually turning it all around. So a lot of reputations are, are at risk here. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, there's no doubt in my mind what the final outcome is going to be. That the timing of that is going to be driven in part by um, at some point, somewhere, do the Russians finally stiffen uh, their backbone and do they throw enough stuff in there to, to slow down, uh, which is possible, but I don't see that coming. But also, do we, everything that was talked about yesterday at Ramstein, does that, do we follow through? Do we deliver? Um, do we keep sanctions in place? That will, 
determine some of the, the timing on this. Um, now, I, I live here in Frankfurt, um, and so uh, I spend a lot of time with my German neighbors and friends and, and colleagues, uh, and I can really feel that the resolve of Germany is growing increasingly strong, um, that they, they understand what this is about. And while a couple of months ago, or maybe even a month ago, I was anxious about how Germany was going to react. There was a poll that came out today that showed every single political party except the IFD. And I can't remember the what the link were, but the, the other, the big ones, the, the Free Democrats, the CDU, the CSU, the, the Greens and SPD, all well over 50 percent in favor of doing this, regardless of what the economic impacts are. That is, I mean, that's amazing. The Greens were like at 90-something percent. Right. Even the so, left, the link was um, over 50%. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so only only the IFD, uh, the right-wing extremists, yeah. uh, were the ones that were, like I think they were 29% or some nonsense like that. So in other words, uh, my, I'm more confident now that we are going to stick together. And of course, here in Germany, uh, and I'm not working for the uh, for the chancellor here, but I mean, I've been impressed. They've taken steps to find alternative sources of gas. Uh, they've got storage up over 80%. People here, um, you know, are already thinking like, oh man, energy prices are going to go through the roof. They, they probably will. And there, of course, there's going to be an economic impact. Um, but these, these riots that we talked about that happened in Cologne and Prague, you can be sure 100%. These are being paid for by the Kremlin, um, where, where they they pour money in to exploit cracks. And of course, there's unhappy yeah. people. Not it's not 100% all for this, but I I would uh, not put too much weight on the fact that there have been some protests. Ben, while we got you, I thought we would take the opportunity to both look back and look ahead. Um, uh, from 2014 onward, again, nobody had a better look at the reforms and the improvements that the Ukrainian military uh, has made than which most in America and the West paid no attention to, but never mind. So I'd be interested in, you know, a, a, a war story or two uh, from your own experience uh, uh, of that, or if there was a moment where you really realized, hey, these guys are serious and, you know, um, about about being able to defend themselves. And then I think it would be good to look forward maybe to the to the spring. And there was a great paper just released by the Ukrainian general staff about what more they think they need. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> looking back six or eight years and then looking ahead six or eight months uh, uh, would be a good contribution, I think. Okay, so, um, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to uh, have to confess that I was part of the group of people that thought that the Russians were going to do much better than they did. Um, I am guilty for uh, of overestimating their capability, and I've been trying to figure out how did, how did I get it so wrong uh, because I watched the you know, their modernization effort that began in 2007. Um, and, and we were aware of capabilities that they had. 
particularly in the area of artillery and rockets and uh, uh, electronic warfare and all of that. <clears throat> but I think there's three reasons I, I was I misjudged them. And then I'll get specifically to what you've asked. Number one, while I knew that there was corruption, I had no idea the depth of the corruption inside the Ministry of Defense and inside the military. I mean, the uh, stealing, the uh, siphoning off resources, and, and so much of this has been manifested in the terrible quality of equipment that soldiers deployed with. And the fact that a soldier deploys, he's sent forward on a planned operation with rations that have already expired. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that happens when somebody's getting paid off that's responsible for quality control or for delivering delivering things um, uh, or when the logistical system is absolutely so poor. So that corruption is, was much deeper than I had envisioned. The numbers that we, the numbers we thought they had, probably 50 to 60% of the numbers were actual people. Um, and even then I would not count them as, you know, uh, ready to fight soldiers. So we over, overestimated their size. Um, the, the second area where I completely messed up was uh, I had assumed they had a lot more operational experience. I mean, from Georgia to Syria to Africa, North Africa, mm -hmm. or yeah, Africa. And then from 2014, of course, when they took over Crimea without a fight. And then we knew for years that they were rotating officers through the um, uh, fighting with the so-called... Uh, um, separatists in Luhansk and Donetsk, I, I just, in my mind, I thought, wow, they've really built up a lot of experience. Uh, and we were seeing indicators that they had, now they had NCOs with carrying secure radios and other little bits and pieces. The third area, so I was wrong. It turns out that maybe 5% of the Russian military actually had operational experience. The vast majority of it still conscript army um, they, and you know, flying missions over Syria is a big difference than <laughs> flying missions uh, against Ukrainians. And the third area where I made a mistake um, or misjudged was on their exercises. They, if you don't have operational experience, you've got to replace that with really hard, rigorous, tough exercises where, you know, you train to the point of failure. That absolutely does not happen inside the Russian military. So when, when because of those things, I, I was wrong. I overestimated their capability. Now, um, reference to Ukrainians, you know, 2014 is when we really started spending time with them. Uh, had a training mission at Yavariv Training Center, which is near Lviv. Uh, and, we, and we were working with uh, Ukrainian units that had been in the fight in the Donbass region. So you're talking about some really uh, hard, hardened veterans. And uh, I remember um, talking to my... NCOs, they were uh, from the 173rd Airborne Brigade, which were the first guys we sent there to help with training. And you talked to some old sergeants that had multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're like, hey, sir, these guys are good. I mean, they, they know what they're doing. And that was at the tactical level. Above that, you still had what I call the big hat guys, you know, Soviet <laughs> kind of um, that, ment <laughs> that mentality that... Uh, had to change, but at the tactical level, they impressed me. And they also impressed me. They were much, um, they were really, really tech savvy. Um, I, I got to see all sorts of, uh, drones that they were, uh, uh, militarizing, if you will. Um, they had stitched together, um, from, uh, 
I don't want to be too specific here, but they could see by stitching together all the different cameras around Crimea, they could see what was going on inside Crimea by hacking into, I mean, like, wow. And then they showed us, they showed me that two thirty six radar, which was our standard counterfire radar, that radar is better than I knew it was. You know, you know, I've never been under Russian artillery fire. You know, they were motivated and that thing was excellent. They were very good. So that right then I thought, okay, you know, if, if we can help their senior leadership get their act together, then the troops at the battalion and company level, they'll be successful. Um, you mentioned Crimea, and I want to take advantage of having you here to ask you one more question on a sort of operational towards strategic level, um, maybe in, in a couple of parts. The first one is with the counteroffensives that are going on right now, our supposition, at least mine is, that the ultimate um, uh, thing that they have to achieve is to cut the land bridge that the Russians have built. And so the, the first question then would be, what do they need um, that we're not helping them with yet, or we're not doing enough with? Um, what do they need to be able to achieve that in the next few months? And then the second part of the question is related to Crimea. I think the Russians have been very successful at, shall we call it, propagandizing our minds that Crimea is a taboo, it's theirs, we should, it's a no-go zone, um, World War III is going to break out if the Ukrainians are trying from, for Crimea. And then um, that piece by the general staff or um, parts of the general staff recently um, in, um, in uh, Ukrainian media talks about Crimea and the land bridge as sort of the heart of um, the Russian operation. So how do you see taking Crimea? You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation of this podcast that um, that you believe this will be taken back um, entirely in the next year or so. Um, what are the difficulties there on the Ukrainian side? What do they need to be able to get closer to that? We're already seeing a few signs over the last few weeks with the Saki airport and beyond. Um, so yeah, what do they need to destroy the land bridge and take back Crimea? So, well, one very directly related concern to, to this is, is that the Russians might have placed or will place nuclear weapons in Crimea. Is this something that should not be even part of the discussion or, or is, it, is it a reasonable concern? Well, I mean, why would they do that? For what purpose? Um, I, I, I don't... As a, as a matter of deterrence. Well, but I mean, they had, they could launch all sorts of nuclear. Yeah, weapons. they don't need to to ha hold Crimea to use a nuclear weapon. Right. Um, now, I, I I did a little simple infantry math there. It's straight line distance from Odessa to Sevastopol is almost exactly three hundred kilometers, which is the range of an ATACMS missile. Okay, uh, from Kherson Airport to Sevastopol is 240 kilometers straight line distance. So in other words, if we either give them a longer range capability, they can start pounding uh, Crimea now on a daily basis. I mean, think about that. Um, even though Putin said, 
uh, Crimea's holy land for Russians. Uh, we all saw the video of those knuckleheads that were there on their holiday uh, at the beach there. And then the next day, there's 36,000 cars trying to get the hell out of there. Um, so that doesn't seem like it's too holy or that none of them were rushing to join the army to defend uh, Crimea. So uh, I don't think that beyond the rhetoric that, um, I mean, it, it will be painful and it will be a massive psychological and political blow for Putin um, for them to lose Crimea. But that I don't think that's going to deter anybody in, in uh, Ukraine from saying, oh, we should be more careful about. Shoot. I mean, they've been shooting at that place every chance they could. And so if you imagine uh, on my air map, I'm, I'm holding my hands up here. OK, <laughs> um, from Harrison, you start getting closer and closer. I mean, Sevastopol is at the bottom end of Crimea, but there are um, other Russian uh, bases airfields and yeah and so pretty soon there's going to be gimblers even the shorter range uh rockets landing in and around crimea so this is going to make pretty soon we're going to be in a position where that place becomes untenable um because the russians cannot stop can't do anything about the rockets so to your question what do they need um Look, our administration, the U.S. administration, has done a very good job. I, I've been impressed. Uh, they should be building Secretary Blinken's statue right now. I mean, it, it really, um, how they've kept everybody together, uh, built this support, and people love a winner. So you're going to, I think you're going to start seeing more and more countries wanting to get on, get in on the on this now that they see how it's going, which is fine. Uh, but what we have not done, and this is the only place where I would fault the administration, we have not said. We want Ukraine to win. Secretary, Secretary Austin did it one time, and he, then he was never allowed to say it again. So the administration has talked all around it like, oh, you know, we want strategic defeat for Russia, whatever the hell that means. Uh, you know, we want independent Ukraine. And well, okay, well, let's say it. Use the W word and then give them everything they need. I, I don't, uh, the, every time the administration says, Okay, we've just approved two billion of this. That's great, but that doesn't matter. That's that's absolutely not relevant. The only number, the only metric that's relevant is percentage of requirement delivered. So, if, and I know that people in the building, the Pentagon, have worked with Ukrainians. Know what that is? Yeah, we know exactly what they need. I mean, this is this is a little bit math. Okay, where are we? You know, we're at 80 percent. That's the only number. We're at 80 percent of giving them what they need to win. And we're working on the other 20 percent. That's that's what um, we should be talking about. Now, in terms of actual capability, it's long range precision fires that can do what we've been talking about. And they really desperately need um, uh, missile defense because the Russians are still launching missiles into, you know, they killed people in Kharkiv uh, earlier today, mm -hmm. just firing missiles in the cities. They're even using S-300, which is a surface-to-air missile, in, in some sort of indirect fire method mode, which you, <laughs> you're just shooting into the middle of the city limits. I mean, that, that's what they're doing. This is like Germany with the V-1 rocket kind of method. Uh, one last um, thing here, just very briefly, that I've been wondering about is before 2022, we looked, you've done some amazing work, several other people have, on looking at 
the Russian military capabilities and their threat potential in the Black Sea, particularly in Crimea. And the center of that, you couldn't talk about it without talking about the S-400s. So I'm wondering, what are they doing um, when Ukraine is already um, bombing airfields? Where are the S-400s? Are they not working? Have they been... Um, made to not work? Can you tell us anything about that? That's, um, I, I would only be speculating, but that is a good question. Um, I don't know how much of this is, they just don't have as many, or they've decided that uh, they don't want to they're, risk. They're afraid of harms, I'm sure. They, they don't want to risk losing them. Yeah. Uh, and that I think the, the decision by the administration to provide harm, that was a, that was a powerful decision. That's, that's not as... Uh, uh, doesn't get detention, yeah. Right, like Hamar's, but in terms of having effect, and really that's what matters is what effect. I mean, that, that's a big deal. Um, but it also, I mean, a lot of this stuff has turned out to be not quite as good as advertised. And, uh, you know, I wonder if my, our Turkish allies are having second thoughts about, you know, um, a little buyer's remorse. I don't know. It's, it's a good weapon. There's no doubt. It's, it's a good weapon. Why are they not using them? I think it's probably because they, um, they don't want to lose them. Well, uh, Ben, it's been, it's been great to have you. I'm, I'm really pleased that a little bit of the Florida boy came out like, in knuckleheads. <laughs> for, you know, that, that certainly is a, a, a very, you know, a verifying uh, thing for our listeners. Uh, it's the kind of language that Ben is familiar with. So uh, that was uh, yeah, it was good to see you unbuttoned. And it's it, just great to catch up with you. And I, I promise it won't be another 80 episodes before we before we have you back. Um, so well, th- thank you so much. Okay. All right, everybody. Um, uh, it was time for us to sign off. So uh, from me, Giselle Donnelly. And Yuria Soja and Balguraj. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges arising on the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. We now have our newsletter, which is up and running um, at the uh, through the AEI website, which you'll can find linked in the show notes. It's a bi-weekly update uh, of newly released episodes. We do exclusive Q's and A's with our hosts, with all of us, and a way to stay up to date with the things that we write, op-eds, articles uh, from us on the security challenges and the issues uh, that we discuss on the podcast. You can find more podcasts, more episodes, and additional content at AEI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. That's all one big word. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. So, so long until next time.